founders warned us that we should expect our foreign adversaries to target our elections and that we will find ourselves in grave danger if the president willingly opens the door to their influence. What kind of president would do that? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I know the answer. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Choose me. Choose I'm me. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. <laughs> and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns oh, to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF, amongst other fine affiliates across this fine land of ours. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, however you found us. I'm happy you did. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, here to tell you, as I always do, yes, it is always about elections. When it comes down to it, politics is eventually about elections, which, by the way, is just one of the reasons we focus so much on them here on this program and at bradblog.com for the past, what, 16 years or so, Desi Doyen? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Free and fair and non-corrupt and publicly overseeable elections so that we can know that they are not corrupt. That is at the very heart of everything we hold dear in this republic. The ability to vote in a non-corrupt election is the ability to protect all of the other rights that we hold dear. And to that end, I was very happy to see the first impeachment hearing in the U.S. House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, which is, by the way, still going on even as we go to air today, focus on the president's attempt to corrupt the upcoming 2020 elections, where voting, by the way, is set to begin in the primaries now in less than two months. That is what all of this is about. That is what Trump was doing when he attempted to strong arm the Ukrainian president into investigating his political rival, Joe Biden. And that is why at least one of the reasons why Democrats are making the case that they need to move quickly on this matter to help prevent the corruption by Donald Trump of the 2020 election by once again his reliance on help from foreign nations to try to help him win re-election. Now, is that a good enough reason to rush through the impeachment of a president of the United States? Well, in one sense, I would say yes, absolutely. In another sense, 
I'm not so sure. We will be joined in a bit by our regular impeachment correspondent, Heather Digby-Parton, to discuss some of those very questions. But I also want to share some excerpts uh, from what turned out to be a fascinating and enlightening hearing with four constitutional law professors uh, that, to be honest, I wasn't looking all that much forward to. But I found it to be an absolutely fascinating and enlightening session. We'll get to some of those clips in a moment. Very quickly, however, before we get to that and some insight from uh, an analysis from Digby, uh, just a news headline or two of note that is sort of related and sort of not. Uh, this is sort of our uh, sort of show today, Desi. <laughs> okay. Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp on Wednesday appointed Atlanta businesswoman Kelly Loeffler to take over the seat of Republican, Republican U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson. Setting aside Kemp's legitimacy as governor, which he barely became last November after a campaign of voter suppression and more in Georgia, where he oversaw his own election to the governor's uh, mansion as secretary of state at the time, as he ran against Stacey Abrams, who would become the uh, nation's first African-American female governor. Setting that aside for the moment, Kemp had been pressed by President Trump to appoint Congressman Doug Collins to become the next U.S. senator in Georgia, who, if you watch the hearings in the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, he is the ranking Republican on that committee. But Kemp bucked the president, sort of, and he selected Loeffler in what CNN describes as a rare act of defiance against Trump by a member of his own party. Isaacson is retiring on December 31 due to health concerns. And, of course, all of this underscores why elections are so important. Had Stacey Abrams been named the winner last year, she, not Kemp, would have likely appointed the next U.S. senator from Georgia, and it likely would have been a Democrat. Loeffler is an executive at a commodities trading firm in Atlanta, and she is the co-owner of the WNBA's Atlanta Dream. She is 49 years old, and she has absolutely no political background at all, and yet she will now be a U.S. senator. Uh, well, not absolutely no political background. She had considered running for Senate in 2014. So there's that. Well, she thought about it. That's plenty of experience. Apparently it is now for the Republican Party these days. Uh, she is, however, a prominent Republican donor. So that helped. She introduced herself at uh, Wednesday's announcement as a, quote, lifelong conservative, pro-Second Amendment, pro-military, pro-wall and pro-Trump, which I guess that's all you need these days. Uh, she confirmed on Wednesday that she does plan, in fact, to run to retain her gifted seat next November. Kemp rallied behind the pick during his announcement, comparing her to Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter and uh, senior advisor, calling her a savvy businesswoman and describing her as a political outsider who knows we need to drain the swamp. Now, uh, have you seen this uh, woman yet, Desi Doyne? I have not. Well, uh, she may be best compared to Ivan Ivanka Trump because she, A, has zero political experience, but perhaps more importantly, because she is a young, hot blonde. <laughs> really. Long hair, good looking. 
So that's her experience for the Republican that's Party. That's it. And that's how she's like Ivanka Trump, frankly. Uh, and I suspect that is also what Kemp uh, liked about her as well. The New York Times uh, reports that while the choice may set off alarm bells among the president's allies, it is being seen by political observers as an attempt by Kemp to shore up support from suburban Republican women. Because, as you know, women will vote for a, a female candidate. Simply because she's a female. Exactly. That's what Republicans tell me. Exactly. Also, uh, one other quick story that, along with Wednesday's impeachment hearing, is also not putting Donald Trump in a good mood today, though I find it hilarious, and I bet the late-night shows are going to as well. Donald Trump blasted Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as two-faced on Wednesday after Trudeau was caught on an open mic with a whole bunch of other world leaders discussing the NATO meeting they were at in London and referencing Trump's lengthy press conferences. And yes, they were laughing about him, laughing at him. And yes, it was all caught on videotape. The video quickly went viral online, showed uh, Trudeau of Canada, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, French President Emmanuel Macron, speaking at a Buckingham Palace reception amongst themselves. And the video begins with Johnson looking to Macron and asking, uh, is that why you were late? And I can't play it for you because it is a noisy room and there's you have to see the It's mostly subtitles, subtitles yeah. yes. And uh, Macron, uh, so Boris says, is that why you were late? And Trudeau jumps in and says he was late because he takes a 40-minute press conference off the top. And they're all laughing. After cutting the footage then, Trudeau adds, I watched his team's jaws drop to the floor and they all laugh some more. Everyone thought they were talking about Trump, even though they didn't say his name. And as it turns out, in his closing news conference at the NATO summit on Wednesday, Trudeau, in fact, confirmed that, yes... They had been talking about Trump on Tuesday. This came after Trump had a 38 minute press conference alongside Macron. Prior to that, he uh, spoke to the uh, next to the NATO secretary general for about 53 minutes. Uh, and Trump uh, said, well, when he was asked about uh, this uh, comment, he called uh, Trudeau while he was standing next to the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, said, well, he's two faced. As the New York Times notes, Trump has a has long bridled at the idea of other world leaders poking fun at the U.S. And part of his 2016 uh, campaign pitch to voters was that his election would change how America was viewed abroad. Well, that part is true. I think they have changed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, not probably how he meant it, uh, however. He, he used to say the world is laughing at us. And now, well, I guess they literally are. At least the, the heads of state are literally laughing at you, Mr. President. Not with you, but at you. Uh, in June of 2017, after he became president, when he announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, Trump said, quote, we don't want other leaders in other countries laughing at us anymore. And they won't be. They won't be, he said. But they are, Donnie. They are. The uh, Times' Maggie Haberman retweeted the video and said, can't get over this, both for the fact that POTUS hates the thought of anyone laughing at him and for the fact that he long used, quote, other countries are laughing at us as an attack against his predecessors. Political scientist and expert on U.S. foreign affairs Ian Bremmer wrote, this happens at every NATO summit with Trump, every G7, every G20. 
the U.S. president is mocked by U.S. allies behind his back. Well, Trump later canceled his closing Wednesday press conference. He said, when today's meetings are over, I'll be heading back to Washington. He said this on Twitter. We won't be doing a press conference at the close of NATO because we did so many over the past two days. Safe travels all. After which, I presume he boarded Air Force One to head home where he was able to enjoy, well, so far, about eight hours of House Judiciary Committee hearings discussing why he should be impeached and removed from office. Safe travels, Mr. President. We'll take a quick break and come back with that impeachment hearing right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. There's a law, there's a law, there's a hand. Yeah, well, there's sort of a law. It's called the Constitution. The it's the ultimate law of the land. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, as noted, before we uh, bring Heather Digby Parton on here to offer some perspective on all of this today, uh, as the first impeachment hearing in the U.S. House Judiciary Committee continues into its eighth hour as we go to air today. Four constitutional law experts testified on the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors as intended by the founders when it was included in the Constitution as the basis of impeachment of a president, along with treason and bribery. And um, at least three of those four constitutional law experts believe that Donald Trump has easily met that standard at this time with his attempt to strong arm Ukraine into helping him in his 2020 reelection effort by announcing uh, by forcing them to announce investigations into Joe Biden and a debunked theory that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election on behalf of Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. Uh, there was a focus, yes, on the founders' interest in ensuring that there would be no corruption in uh, no, no corrupting foreign influence in our American elections as the academics spoke in their opening statements. Uh, I want to play a few excerpts here uh, from the opening statements of Professor Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School, Professor Pamela Carlin of Stanford, and Professor Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina School of Law. The framers provided for the impeachment of the president because they feared that the president might abuse the power of his office for personal benefit, to corrupt the electoral process and ensure his reelection, or to subvert the national security of the United States. High crimes and misdemeanors are abuses of power and of public trust connected to the office of the presidency. On the basis of the testimony and the evidence before the House, President Trump has committed impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors by corruptly abusing the office of the presidency. Specifically, 
President Trump has abused his office by corruptly soliciting President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine to announce investigations of his political rivals in order to gain personal advantage, including in the 2020 presidential election. President Trump's conduct, as described in the testimony and evidence, clearly constitutes impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors under the Constitution. In particular, the memorandum and other testimony relating to the July 25th, 2019 phone call between the two presidents, President Trump and President Zelensky, more than sufficiently indicates that President Trump abused his office by soliciting the president of Ukraine to investigate his political rivals in order to gain personal political advantage, including in relation to the 2020 election. Again, the words abuse of office are not mystical or magical. They are very clear. The abuse of office occurs when the president uses a feature of his power, the awesome power of his office, not to serve the interests of the American public, but to serve his personal, individual, partisan, electoral interests. That is what the evidence before the House indicates. Drawing a foreign government into our elections is an especially abu uh, serious abuse of power because it undermines democracy itself. Our Constitution begins with the words, we the people, for a reason. Our government, in James Madison's words, derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people. And the way it derives these powers is through elections. Elections matter, both to the legitimacy of our government and to all of our individual freedoms, because as the Supreme Court declared more than a century ago, voting is preservative of all rights. So it is hardly surprising that the Constitution is marbled with provisions governing elections and guaranteeing governmental accountability. Indeed, a majority of the amendments to our Constitution since the Civil War have dealt with voting or with terms of office. And among the most important provisions of our original Constitution is the guarantee of periodic elections for the presidency, one every four years. America has kept that promise for more than two centuries, and it has done so even during wartime. For example, we invented the idea of absentee voting so that Union troops who supported President Lincoln could stay in the field during the election of 1864. And since then, countless other Americans have fought and died to protect our right to vote. But the framers of our Constitution realized that elections alone could not guarantee that the United States would remain a republic. One of the key reasons for including the impeachment power was a risk that unscrupulous officials might try to rig the election process. Based on the evidentiary record before you, what has happened in the case today is something that I do not think we have ever seen before. A president who has doubled down on violating his oath to faithfully execute the laws and to protect and defend the Constitution. The evidence reveals a president who used the powers of his office to demand that a foreign government participate in undermining a competing candidate for the presidency. As President John Kennedy declared, the right to vote in a free American election is the most powerful and precious right in the world. But our elections become less free when they are distorted by foreign interference. What happened in 2016 was bad enough, 
There is widespread agreement that Russian operatives intervened to manipulate our political process. But that distortion is magnified if a sitting president abuses the powers of his office actually to invite foreign intervention. To see why, imagine living in a part of Louisiana or Texas that's prone to devastating hurricanes and flooding. What would you think if you lived there and your governor asked for a meeting with the president to discuss getting disaster aid that Congress has provided for? What would you think if that president said, I would like, to do you, I would like you to do us a favor? I'll meet with you and I'll send the disaster relief once you brand my opponent a criminal. Wouldn't you know in your gut that such a president had abused his office, that he betrayed the national interest, and that he was trying to corrupt the electoral process? I believe that the evidentiary record shows wrongful acts on that scale here. It shows a president who delayed meeting a foreign leader and providing assistance that Congress and his own advisors agreed serves our national interest in promoting democracy and in limiting Russian aggression. Saying, Russia, if you're listening, you know, a president who cared about the Constitution would say, Russia, if you're listening, butt out of our elections. And it shows a president who did this to strong arm a foreign leader into smearing one of the president's opponents in our ongoing election season. That's not politics as usual, at least not in the United States or not in any mature democracy. It is instead a cardinal reason why the Constitution contains an impeachment power. Put simply, a president should resist foreign interference in our elections, not demand it and not welcome it. If we are to keep faith with our Constitution and with our republic, President Trump must be held to account. Thank you. The gravity of the president's misconduct is apparent when we compare it to the misconduct of the one president who resigned from office to avoid impeachment, conviction, and removal. The House Judiciary Committee in 1974 approved three articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon, who resigned a few days later. The first article charged him with obstruction of justice. If you read the Mueller report, it identifies a number of facts, I won't lay them out here right now, that suggest the president himself has obstructed justice. If we look at the second article of impeachment approved against Richard Nixon, uh, it uh, charged him with abuse of power for ordering the heads of the FBI, IRS, and CIA to, to harass his political enemies. In the present circumstance, the president is engaged in a pattern of abusing the trust placed in him by the American people by soliciting foreign countries, including China, Russia, and Ukraine, to investigate his political opponents and interfere on his behalf in elections in which he is a candidate. The third article approved against President Nixon charged that he had failed to comply with four legislative subpoenas. In the present circumstance, the president has refused to comply with and directed at least 10 others in his, his administration not to comply with lawful congressional subpoenas, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and Acting Chief of Staff and Head of the Office of Management and Budget Mick Mulvaney. As Senator Lindsey Graham, now Chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said when he was a member of the House on the verge of impeaching President Clinton, the day Richard Nixon failed to answer that subpoena is the day he was subject to impeachment because he took the power from Congress over the impeachment process away from Congress and he became the judge and jury. That is a perfectly good articulation of why obstruction of Congress is impeachable. If Congress fails to impeach here, then the impeachment process has lost all meaning 
And along with that, our Constitution's carefully crafted safeguards against the establishment of a king on American soil. And therefore, I stand with the Constitution, and I stand with the framers who are committed to ensure that no one is above the law. As do I. Uh, that was the uh, from, clips from the opening statement in the U.S. House Judiciary Committee today from Professor Noah Feldman of Harvard, pa- Professor Pam Carlin of Stanford, and Professor Gerhardt of the UNC School of Law. But not all of the witnesses agreed that Donald Trump committed uh, impeachable offenses. Jonathan Turley of George Washington University School of Law did not. We'll take a quick break and we will come back with more on that, including Heather Digby Parton right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Yeah, I don't know if I would consider the house rocking, but for what, uh, for uh, um, uh, scholars, academic uh, constitutional law professors, it was kind of rocking today in the house. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There was some very helpful, very clear, very concise, direct questioning of the witnesses at the House Judiciary Committee's first impeachment hearing on Wednesday, featuring four academic constitutional scholars focusing on what is and is not an impeachable crime. Here's an example of a colloquy between the Democratic Counsel, Norm Eisen, and witnesses Noah Feldman of Harvard, uh, Pamela Carlin of Stanford Law, and Michael Gerhardt of UNC School of Law. Professor Feldman. What is abuse of power? Abuse of power is when the president uses his office, takes an action that is part of the presidency, not to serve the public interest, but to serve his private benefit. And in particular, it's an abuse of power if he does it to facilitate his reelection or to gain an advantage that is not available to anyone who is not the president. Sir, why is that impeachable conduct? If the president uses his office for personal gain, the only recourse available under the Constitution is for him to be impeached because the president cannot be, as a practical matter, charged criminally while he is in office because the Department of Justice works for the president. So the only mechanism available for a president who tries to distort the electoral process for personal gain is to impeach him. That is why we have impeachment. Professor Carlin. Do scholars of impeachment generally agree that abuse of power is an impeachable offense? Yes, they do. Professor Gerhardt, do you agree that abuse of power is impeachable? Yes, sir. I'd like to focus the panel on the evidence they considered and the findings in the Intelligence Committee report that the president solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, 
in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Press Professor Feldman, did President Trump commit the impeachable high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of power based on that evidence and those findings? Based on that evidence and those findings, the president did commit an impeachable abuse of office. Professor Carlin, same question. Same answer. And Professor Gerhardt, did President Trump commit the impeachable high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of power? We three are unanimous, yes. So that's the kind of clear questioning that's uh, kind of nice, isn't it, Desi Doyen? It certainly is. Uh, that was a question from Norm Eisen on behalf of the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee. There was one witness, however, the one called by Republicans, Professor Jonathan Turley of George Washington Law School, who disagreed on the matter of whether uh, these issues, specifically the charge of bribery, was an abuse of power. Uh, and that uh, Democrats were highlighting that point during Wednesday's hearing, whether these matters were, in fact, impeachable offenses, at least as Democrats have been describing bribery in this context. Moreover, Turley also felt that the Democratic case for obstruction of, of, uh, of Congress uh, as an impeachable offense presented in the hearings and in the Intelligence Committee's 300-page report unveiled on Tuesday was also a weak case. Given that, uh, although the Trump administration has instructed all witnesses to not testify in the congressional impeachment inquiry and has failed to share any documents whatsoever with the investigators, that that still does not constitute obstruction. Why? Well, he explained because the courts have not yet rung in on whether those witnesses are required to answer lawful congressional subpoenas. He says there's a third branch of government that needs to be brought into this process. And so while he feels maybe this would amount to obstruction, it does not yet. And Democrats are rushing to make their case. Joining us now to uh, once again to discuss all of this and probably much more to help us make sense of these hearings today is our ace impeachment uh, hearing slogger and blogger correspondent. <laughs> Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Digby's Hullabaloo, who is uh, holding our hand or vice versa throughout many of these historic hearings. Hey, Digby, welcome back to the broadcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brad. Thanks for holding my hand. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all in this mess together, Heather. Uh, first, uh, you know, I, I believe, uh, to paraphrase George W. Bush, I think I had previously misunderestimated the power of this particular hearing uh, billed as it was with, you know, non-fact witnesses to the president's various impeachable crimes in question, uh, but instead with four constitutional law professors discussing what the founders, founders meant by high crimes and misdemeanors. But I found at least in, in particular, the opening statements and the first round of questioning from the Democratic counselor there, uh, I found it to be absolutely fascinating and instructive and enlightening in a whole bunch of ways with uh, a few very impassioned and not dry at all professors called to testify. And even the Republicans witness, Jonathan Turley, who I have admired at various times over the years, uh, I thought he offered, while I disagreed with a lot of what he had to say, he offered a very serious and helpful and insightful argument on several points. So your general overview, Heather, as these hearings are continuing, even as we go to air, uh, your general uh, thoughts on Wednesday's first impeachment hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. 
Well, I would agree with you that they were more interesting than I anticipated. And I think, you know, especially coming off of, you know, you have to acknowledge that in the first part of the week, what we got was this report from the the Intelligence Committee, mm-hmm. which was also really interesting and uh, laid out their case mm-hmm. very clearly. They didn't talk about that much in the hearings um, you know, about, you know, with the law professors, simply because that wasn't what they were there for. They also there because they hadn't read the 300 pages that got <laughs> right. delivered just hours earlier, late last night. Anyway, proceed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, um, you know, they were there for a different purpose, which mm-hmm. was to explain the basis for impeachment and the constitutional, um, you know, fundamentals mm-hmm. and the history uh, going into it and discuss, you know, previous impeachments and what have you. And, and it really was interesting. And it was, I, I found it interesting mm-hmm. Even and I, th- I think that a lot of people will. I don't know how many people will will sit through the whole thing, right. but I think that even just hearing the clips, they're going to find some information that perhaps they didn't, you know, didn't know before, unless you're a constitutional, you know, law professor like these people yeah. are. And you know, I recall. I mean, you know, wasn't that? I mean, I guess it seems like a long time ago to some people, but to me, it doesn't seem that long ago that we had another impeachment. And in the, that process, there was a lot of discussion about some of these issues. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, for instance, they, you know, one of the professors made the point, and this is a very important point, that high crimes and misdemeanors, the definition of that, mm-hmm. it, they actually could have been more specific by saying high crimes and high misdemeanors, which I think would have cleared it up. The, fa- the founders could have been more specific. The founders yeah. could have been more specific by saying high crimes and high misdemeanors, mm-hmm. which would have you know, made it very explicit that this, what, what, these were crimes that were specific to the president, being the highest office in the land and being someone who had power that no one else in the country had. Mm-hmm. So these are crimes that can only be committed by that person, mm-hmm. which the, to it, you know, to, in, in our parlance today means abuse of power. And that is a very broad category. You're not going to go out and write laws for every potential presidential abuse of power because that would be ridiculous and it's also impossible. So what you what they did was, you know, put this category in there along with two others, treason and bribery. Mm-hmm. And bribery being one that is actually applicable to the current situation. But it, you know, those are the kinds of of discussions that I think are interesting and important to the American people. We're losing sight, you know, in in this modern Trump era of you know, kind of fundamental civics, just things that we used to sort of take for granted. And I'm not, you know, condemning anybody for not knowing these things, but nonetheless, it's important that that we sort of be reminded yeah. uh, of, of what, what, you know, what's at stake and what this whole thing means. And I think that that's a very useful thing. And as I said, in 1998, we yeah. went through all this, and Jonathan Turley, the Republican, I have a slightly less... Um, positive view of him, I think, than you. Okay. Um, he, his, his testimony in 1998, he's, you know, look, he's a, mm-hmm. he's a camera hog. He's a guy who's always all over right-wing television. He always has been. Right. Um, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's fine. There are plenty of people who do that, you know, so I'm not, I'm not making a, you know, a value judgment there. Oh, yes, yes, you are, but go okay, ahead. Okay, I am. Yeah, but go ahead. I, I am yeah. because it's him, and right? the stuff he says is... He has been, uh, to say the least, a bit inconsistent over over time. During the Clinton impeachment um, hearings, he was also called as an expert witness. And what he said at the time, uh, in complete, con- you know, contradicting what he said today, yeah. 
that uh, there didn't have to be a crime, that he said that Clinton could be impeached for conduct that he called incompatible with the job, well, like lying to his own staff. And let me let me play that clip. You've jumped ahead of me a little bit here, but that's oh, okay. No, 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 that's okay, because uh, I wanted to get to this anyway. So here's uh, Turley. In uh, 1998, uh, and I guess it was testimony regarding the Bill Clinton impeachment, and here's what he said about what was required at that point uh, for something to be an impeachable offense worth removing a president for. No matter how you feel about President Clinton, and I don't dislike President Clinton, I voted for President Clinton, but no matter how you feel about President Clinton, no matter how you feel about the independent counsel, By his own conduct, he has deprived himself of the perceived legitimacy to govern. You need both political and legal legitimacy to govern this nation because the president must be able to demand an absolute sacrifice from the public at a moment's notice. And when there's a question of legitimacy, it has to be resolved in a way that it doesn't divide what Franklin referred to as irregular actions. Now, uh, let me, and so that was him saying that, uh, yeah, back then, 1998, what Clinton did, he has deprived himself of legitimacy to govern. I guess what he's saying here is Donald Trump has not done so? Uh, apparently, and he is also saying that that it, to be, you know, legitimately impeachable, yeah. he will have had to commit an actual crime. Mm-hmm. Moreover, if you were to, to say that he has committed a uh, abuse of power, Mm -hmm. the high crimes and misdemeanors part, this has to run all the way through the courts. He's suggesting that it's that you have to bring the, um, you know, the the courts into it in order to determine whether or not we are in the midst of a constitutional crisis. That is not what he said before. That is not in any way what he said earlier. Now, you know, he, he has been all over the map, and he, in this case, obviously, he likes to pretend, like, you know, today he said that you know, he's mad at Donald Trump and his dog, his Labrador Golden Doodle is mad at Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean that, you know, he's committed impeachable offense. And you can see mm-hmm. the same sort of, you know, sanctimonious kind of, you know, phony earnestness that he, <laughs> he used in 1998. Say, so, well, I, I don't dislike President Clinton. I voted for him. So he's always sort of saying, I'm a, you know, I personally you know, like or don't like whoever's on, you know, and whatever right. side I'm taking. But in the end, he always sort of ends up on the side of the Republicans. Let's well, just put it that way. Well, we, we, uh, we talked about it, uh, talked about uh, Turley a little bit with my guest on yesterday's broadcast, John Bonifaz, because uh, Bonifaz, of course, has been a, a leader in calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump. He was also calling for the impeachment of George W. Bush. Bonifaz also supported the impeachment of Bill Clinton and pointed out that uh, Turley was with him at that point and so he's a little confused why he's uh, pulling his punch seems to be pulling his punches now but just to look at the specific charges uh the claims that he's uh, making here well he says uh, bribery uh is is disputable because unlike uh previous impeachment charges in the clinton case Clinton committed perjury, which is something that even Democrats agreed with, uh, at least some Democrats agreed with at the time, so that there was a clear uh, crime there that could be at least agreed upon. He said that obstruction 
uh, is not only up to Congress, that that's what the courts are for, and that these cases could go, uh, that they are, in fact, pending uh, these witnesses who, who refuse to show up on White House orders, that those cases are now working their way through the courts. Uh, and beyond that, that this entire thing is just moving too fast, that a case, he says, could be built here for impeachment, but it hasn't been yet because it's moving too fast. Uh, and uh, Heather, uh, you also suggested as much, sort of, in a recent column of yours at, at Salon, if I recall, um, that they shouldn't move forward so quickly with impeachment. They should wait until all of these others, uh, these other witnesses, Mick Mulvaney, John Bolton, uh, and so forth, uh, actually come in and uh, testify, Don McGahn. So sounds like you agree with Jonathan Turley, Heather. I do. <laughs> okay. And Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, on that one issue, I, I think, and I'm a little bit surprised that the Republicans are making this case. Because what we know, of course, mm -hmm. is that it is almost, you know, entirely, you know, it's a 99.9% sure that he is that Trump is going to be acquitted in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that they'd want to get this thing over with, because then they can say, hey, I was exonerated, he can say I was totally exonerated, it was a witch hunt, and now let's go, mm -hmm. you know, talk about something else. Uh, so I was very surprised to hear Turley make that, and then there were a couple of, of Republicans uh, on the panel who said the same thing, you know, what are we rushing into this for? Why aren't we hearing from the witnesses and all that? Now, I get that they think that the courts are going to back them. Um, but what they are mistaking, I think, by that, that, the that the Republicans think the courts are going to back them? Yes. Okay. I think the Republicans assume that they've got the courts <clears throat> locked up. That's right. Mitch McConnell's mission in life, and I think they figure they could go all the way to the Supremes. Supremes in the win there, yeah. Yeah, they, they'd win. So, right. of course, that's, you know, that's part of what, what, what that's about. Mm -hmm. But what, what they're not understanding is that every day that goes by, <laughs> there's more information that's falling out. This isn't, you know, this isn't just about Mueller. It isn't, you know, the Ukraine story alone is every single day. We just learned today that Rudy Giuliani is mm -hmm. over in Ukraine right now making a documentary with the, some of these corrupt Ukrainian officials mm -hmm. for the OAN network to, you know, I mean, this is Rudy Giuliani who is in grave danger of being indicted. It's clear that he's involved in a number of schemes. And, by the way, he's even on Trump's bad side mm -hmm. for going on TV and saying that he, uh, you know, that he has an insurance policy. Right, right. Um, and Trump apparently got a little testy about that and banned him from Fox, which I guess explains why he's going to OAN at this point. Um, but, yeah, this is some crazy stuff that is, is unfolding on a daily basis just this week. Well, we the, found out that the phone calls, yeah. that they, they had phone records of Devin Nunes, who was involved in the hearings just this past month, never mentioned that he was involved in this whole scheme. Okay, so, so I, oh. with that then, Heather, I, you seem to be making, and I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing here, but I, you seem to be making sort of the point that Turley, uh, like him, love him, or hate him, is sort of making, which is that there is this rush to get this done and that uh, there's a lot of things that, that we should sure. unfold before they move ahead with, uh, you know, this, this what they're calling, uh, you know, the Republicans are calling sort of an artificial deadline based on the clock and the calendar to vote for articles of impeachment before the end of the year. Well, I, yeah, and I, but I think you're assuming that Turley's making that argument in good faith. And I don't believe that he is. He's been talking about this Ukraine hoax. He was writing about it many months ago on the Hill and 
writing in various places. He's not, you know, he's not making a good faith argument that, gosh, you know, I could be persuaded if we just had more evidence. That is not what he's doing. I think they really think that they've got the courts as backup and that they, they want to shut the process down through the judiciary. But what they, my point is, is that even if that happens, this stuff, all of this information just keeps flowing out, whether you like it or not. And, you know, there are areas that are still to be explored. There's something going on with Turkey so, that is very similar to what happened in Ukraine. Uh, I, there are so many areas, hmm. and I think if they want to leave this to just, you know, continue as part of an impeachment proceeding, they're making a political mistake. I wish they would make that mistake. Well, I really do. Well, and that, by the way, does seem to be what uh, Adam Schiff is indicating he's going to do. Uh, he's going to keep on investigating anyway. Uh, and and that was also, by the way, what John Boniface uh, said on our previous broadcast, that there's so many more things that he should be uh, held accountable for. There's so many other articles of impeachment that even if they vote on some now, they should keep voting on them later. Let's talk uh, very quickly, uh, Heather, about the things based on the Wednesday hearing with these four constitutional law professors. The sense that I get was that Democrats at least with this round, seem to be focused on uh, sort of either three or four potential articles of impeachment. And I want to see if you agree with my tea leaf reading here. Abuse of power as one. Uh, bribery, which may be part of the abuse of power that they're focusing on. I'm not sure. So that could be one article. But then they're looking at obstruction of Congress in the Ukraine matter where, you know, the White House will refuse to turn over documents or allow witnesses to testify. And then a separate article, if I understand it, obstruction of justice regarding the Robert Mueller investigation, which I was very happy to see. It doesn't look like they're letting that one go in the uh, uh, in the House Judiciary Committee. So I, I sort of saw them honing in on either those three or four articles. Did did you hear the same thing? Did you, did you did you see it the same way? I did, I did, and I and I agree with you about the the obstruction of justice part. Look, Robert Mueller wrote that, or whoever wrote it, mm -hmm. uh, wrote that volume two of his report clearly with the intention that it would be seen as a report out for an, for an article of impeachment mm -hmm. or. 10 articles of impeachment if they want to lay each one out, you know, explicitly. It's there. They have all of those Trump, uh, you know, Trump people, <laughs> like Don McGahn, mm -hmm. uh, under oath. They've already testified. You don't need to get them up there. They don't have to sit there. It would be nice. I mean, I would love to see Don McGahn under, you know, the grilling by Dan Goldman, mm -hmm. or a good, a good lawyer, right? Right. But it's not necessary. He, he spoke under oath. It's there. And it, it was laid out for them. And for them to ignore that, particularly since the whole thrust of this investigation uh, and, and this particular, you know, the, the Ukraine, um, you know, matter, uh, scandal, is that, you know, Trump was trying to rig the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. That's that's essentially what he was trying to do. And that seems to be and, what the rush is about, because yeah. because they realize there's an election coming up. It all comes back to elections. There's a reason why we always cover right. elections on this program and at bradblog.com. The, the, both the fact that we'll, we'll all, we're all going to be voting in the presidential primaries in, uh, in less than two months, by the way, Heather, the first votes in Iowa. And then the uh, general election in about 11 months, uh, but also because what Trump was doing was meant to 
affect or corrupt, as Professor Carlin describes it here, right. the, the 2020 election, and that if he is allowed to do so, he will continue to do so over the next 11 months. Here's a, here's a quick clip on that. Professor Carlin, what does that responsibility mean for this committee with respect to President's, President Trump's abuse of power? Well, because this is an abuse that cuts to the heart of democracy, you need to ask yourselves, if you don't impeach a president who has done what this president has done, or at least you don't, you don't investigate and then impeach if you conclude that the, House, that the House Select Committee on Intelligence findings are correct, then what you're saying is it's fine to go ahead and do this again. And that's the message that would be sent. So, <clears throat> Heather, that would seem to... Uh, just to continue the seesaw, that would con- that would seem to work against your theory that they're moving too quickly. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. You know, I understand that um, yeah. that that rationale. Uh, I just, I you know, just and this is just me. I'm not a law professor. <laughs> what do I know? Yeah. But that just, I just don't see on a political level how that makes any difference. I, I, I suspect that Trump is going to do what he's going to do if he's exonerated. You know, exonerated if he's found. You know, not guilty mm-hmm. in the in the Senate, which is you know ninety nine point nine percent assured. Right. Uh, he is going to believe that he you know was exo- totally exonerated, and he will you know he will he will do what he's going to do. Now, I do think that this pressure of impeachment is good. I think it keeps him off kilter. I think it keeps the people around him off kilter. Mm-hmm. I think it is is the kind of pressure that the Democrats should have been. You know, putting on him from the moment they got the power in the House to do it, yep. and I'm glad to see that. So for me, I think that carrying it on is actually a better way to assure that he's not going to do it again than to give him his trial and his, quote, total exoneration. Because remember, the very day after Robert Mueller appeared before the, the, the House, um, I guess it was the Oversight mm-hmm. Committee, the very day that he that he appeared and testified, the very day afterwards, Trump made that phone call to Zelensky in Ukraine and and tried to corrupt right. the 2020 election because he believed that he had been you know he that he got off the hook and he was free to do what he wanted and I think that's what he'll think again. So you know I I, I don't know, but to me, <laughs> keeping the pressure up makes more political sense than giving him the ability to believe that he can get away with anything. And I've got uh, just a minute or two here. I want to hit a couple more points uh, with Heather Digby Parton on these uh, ongoing hearings in the uh, U.S. House Judiciary Committee, even as we go to air here today. Just to, you know, going back and forth between uh, the rush to get... Because, you know what, frankly, I'm, I'm, I think I'm sort of stuck on this Turley idea because... I think that they, uh, the Republicans, Republicans are going to latch on to what he said for opportunistic purposes. But those opportunistic purposes also line up, as I said, Heather, with yeah. some of your thoughts that oh, they should take some more time. But then we've got the rush of the uh, the upcoming election. So with that in mind. You know, since we pulled that quote from Turley in uh, 1998, saying Clinton has deprived himself of you know legitimacy to govern. The Republicans are pulling up these quotes from Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, also from 1998, from the Bill Clinton impeachment, to the effect of, 
We should not remove an elected president without a broad bipartisan consensus. They keep bringing this up throughout these hearings. Well, uh, there is much more support now for impeachment than there was during the Clinton era. About 50 percent support removal of the president now versus about uh, no more than 30 back with uh, with Clinton. But there is even less bipartisan support in Congress now than there was then. Um when there were about 13 or so Democrats, as I recall, who were in favor of impeachment. Now there's like zero Republicans in favor. Is that going to be a problem for the Democrats if, you know, they point back to Jerry Nadler himself saying you, you can't do this unless you got support, unless you got bipartisan support? Well, that was then and this is now. And the difference is, is that the Republicans have gone completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. They were... You know, very close to being crazy. Mm -hmm. They had episodes of craziness, which, by the way, I think the Clinton impeachment was one of the first signs of how far they've gone. They were going off the rails. Yeah. They had, you know, there was no consensus, you know, in the in the country. If anything, mm -hmm. I mean, as you pointed out, they never had more than thirty percent approval um, for for impeachment. It was a completely ridiculous premise for an impeachment because it was on a civil case that had been dismissed by the judge and it was about a you know an extramarital uh -huh. affair i mean the whole thing was was absurd and and i think and the whole country knew it and they did it anyway and in fact it ended up costing a bunch of republican seats and it ended up costing newt gingrich his job and yeah. then his successor you know livingston his job i mean it was a real it was not a uh, a successful operation but you know they they continued to go crazy they, you know, the 2000 election, you know better than anybody about just how um, corrupt that was, mm -hmm. uh, the Iraq war, and, you know, now Donald Trump. I mean, this is where we've been leading. So it's a different Republican Party. I, it is not a different Democratic Party. Honest to God, I believe that if the same thing were to happen today to mm -hmm. a Democratic president in those circumstances, there would still be some Democrats who would probably go the other way. Or, you yeah. know, I, I just I do not see the same dynamic on the Democratic Party. And I would be upset by that, by the way. I remember when those Democrats went the other way. I'm going, what, are you kidding? You know, right. <laughs> this is the stupidest, the stupidest impeachment in the world. But yeah. it did exist. And the Republicans, you know, they just, they are in lockstep. And, and, they're in, and this is part of the, we talk about this all the time, uh, yeah. you know, the three of us do, this Trump you know, cult-like behavior. Yeah. And in this case, I mean, you know, you have to step back and you have to remember what this guy did. He's done a lot of things, but in this specific instance, what he did was basically he 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 tried to, you know, extort the the president mm -hmm. of a foreign country to, you know, involve himself in our elections and, and, for, and for personal gain. For personal, for personal gain. gain. And that's I what mean, they, this that's, is like, yeah. you know, come on. I, I mean, know. But how can you even compare this to what, what Clinton was accused of well, doing? It's not and, even the same universe. And even if you do try to compare it to the 1998 Clinton impeachment, which I think Republicans are doing not in good faith, obviously, because let's be real, there are no circumstances under which any Republican today would ever 
never impeach any Republican president. There are right. zero circumstances. I think they've proven that to all of us. And I think it's a red herring. Even that if he Republican, shot someone on Fifth Avenue? Even if he shot someone on Fifth <laughs> yeah. Avenue, I believe they would find a reason to yeah. justify that that person yeah. deserved it in yeah. some fashion. <laughs> yes, so did. I think that that is all a red herring. Well, they herring. were a Clinton donor after all, so <laughs> they deserve it. Yeah. How much money did the, did the victim right. give to Hillary Clinton? It, right. it is a complete red herring to demand yeah, this is. sort of bipartisan idea because they would never do that. And it also means that they can be guaranteed that a minority can always shut down impeachment yeah. investigations of a president forever. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. And uh, and that was actually a point that uh, Professor uh, Gerhardt made, uh, Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina, sort of echoing. I mean, just to give credit, uh, there is someone still on Fox News, uh, former uh, Judge Anthony Napolitano, yeah. who is apparently willing to say out loud, and this is a quote, in my view, it is clearly impeachable because it includes two crimes, the crime of bribery. The other crime is asking for campaign aid from a foreign national. That is a crime in and of itself, just asking, he points out. Uh, but uh, as Professor Gerhardt said today, if this is not impeachable, then nothing ever will be. What we're, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. Heather, I got to get out, but give me uh, give you the last word here. And by the way, we don't know when the next uh, hearing is going to be or what it is going to be about. But uh, but your thoughts on on that as we move. Well, forward. I think you know what Judge Napolitano says is absolutely correct. I mean, the fact that he's even allowed to speak on Fox is kind of surprising to me. Mm. Um, but that is the same. You know, that's the same conservative view that would have been, you know, 30 years ago that you would have assumed anybody would say in a situation like this. So, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know where it's going to go, but I have to say that I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, enthusiastic considering that I felt like the hearings went pretty well today. Um, and it may be going forward. Maybe some people will be persuaded. I mean, who knows? We will see. Nobody knows. We will find out, and uh, hopefully, Heather, you will be here to uh, help us cover it at the time. Heather Digby-Parton, you can find her work at Salon.com and at Digby'sBlog.Blogspot.com. And, of course, on the Twitters, you will find her at digby Five six. Don't know when we're going to be talking to you next, uh, Digby, on this, but I suspect it won't be very long. Thanks uh, for joining us, and get yourself back to those hearings right now. <laughs> My pleasure. All Thanks, right. Chris. You bet. All right, we have to get out. Uh, yes, I know, running late, as yes. ever. Sorry. <laughs> My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, of course, to the great Heather Digby-Parton, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. It is free thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Yes, informing the electorate as best as we can. My thanks to those of you who keep us in mind, by the way, for your end-of-year giving at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters you'll find me at simply the brad blog we'll see you there until we see you again tomorrow i'm brad friedman good luck world